Great storytelling is the foundation stone of what the brain needs to drive any real connection with the brand. This quote comes from the CEO of NeuroInsight UK, who is reviewing the 2021 Creative Effectiveness Lines winners. And today I'm joined by a guest who knows all about the power of storytelling. Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing. Today, speaking to me from Brooklyn in New York, I'm joined by VP of Marketing at WiseHire, Carmen Bryant. Carmen is an international speaker and strategic business leader with more than 20 years of marketing, research, and thought leadership experience. Her unique expertise helps her translate insights and cultural shifts into compelling stories that motivate action. Carmen shares her own story today, going from engineering to sociology that led to an internship at an agency where Carmen developed her interest in customer-facing roles. We talk about the power of customer insights, understanding the difference between a job being done and a job being done well, the importance of outsourcing for fresh perspective, and how being prepared is so key when you're a communicator. And for Carmen, the biggest sign of someone who's not prepared is someone who comes and tells you a thousand details. And we also discussed the Crown Act, which aims to provide protection against discrimination based on race-based hairstyles by extending statutory protection to hair texture and protective styles such as braids, locks, twists and knots in the workplace and public schools. And yes, this is 2023 and this is actually something that happens. And Carmen shares her experience. I hope you enjoy today's episodes and particularly the start where I start with a, a massive mistake. So enjoy the episode. Carmen, thanks for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you too. It's been a while. How are you doing? Yeah, it has been a while. Let's yeah. get straight into it. Your role, you are VP of Marketing at WizHire. Can you just tell anyone listening a bit about the company and what they do? Yes. Uh, first of all, it's WizHire. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I was listening to an episode of a podcast yesterday with uh, the CMO show with Kate Gunning and Paul Darcy, our former boss. Yes. And she apparently called Miro wrong all the time. So I'm in good company about pronouncing companies incorrectly. (laughs) That's fine. And you're not the first person who's called it that. But yeah, it's wise hire. (laughs) Brilliant. So what do they do? So um, wise hire is a small HR tech startup. So staying in the same space as I was in at Indeed, uh, but we're exclusively focused on B2B. So we are helping small and kind of growing businesses find talent. And we do that with our hiring platform, but we also have hiring coaches. So, um, you know, if you are a small business owner and are finding it really challenging to navigate finding talent, you can use a really intuitive platform, or you can also actually talk to a person and get some questions answered and hopefully accelerate the process to getting uh, getting the answers that you need. Okay. Oh, great. That's, that's, I didn't know that was part of the, part of the offering. So kind of helping, I guess that was one of the, certainly smaller businesses, one of the things we would know from, from, previous work is that they're not hiring experts or they're not experts. They wear so many different hats, don't they? Absolutely. And, you know, I think you think about someone who needs to find someone who's going to be exceptional. They don't have the time or the expertise to do it. So how do you hire with confidence? So I think what we're able to do is kind of fit in that space between them having to do it truly all on their own 
um, or pay, you know, an exorbitant amount to, yeah. to outsource it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really trying to address what that really core pain point is. I just want to find great talent. I don't know all the answers on how to do it, but I want to be confident about the process. Yeah, and getting the wrong hire, you know, small and medium businesses, can, like it's anywhere it's a problem, but like yeah. in a smaller company, that's a huge problem. It is massive. It is massive. So let's go back and I'd love to know how you got into into marketing. What was your path into into your marketing career? Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I have to go way, way back now <laughs> but uh, I go all the way back to college when I was in college I, I started college thinking I wanted to be an engineer because that was one of the three jobs I really knew like engineering <laughs> or lawyer um, and so that was kind of what I started doing and then I really just had this crazy idea to follow where my interests were and I majored in uh, sociology with a specific focus on cultural sociology and it was a lot of um, looking into media and looking okay. at images of race and gender and what was happening in the media. And I just found it really fascinating. And I had an internship at an advertising agency. So that was kind of the start of a lot of that. Uh, so I started in market research um, and did that um, for a few years. And I transitioned into like brand consulting, um, went into media um, uh, eventually on the print side and then the television side. And it's really in the media space where I started to do much of the sort of traditional aspects of marketing that yeah. we could, uh, think of. So um, obviously advertising, uh, custom content, uh, trends and insights. Um, and then, you know, after the stint at Admiss Universal, I transition to Indeed, which is obviously where, where you and I met, and begin to focus on things like field marketing and demand generation. So it was a um, probably not the most traditional path, you know, for folks who have been in like pure traditional marketing yeah. career, but I had a really heavy focus on um, uh, customer facing roles and providing insights and collaborating with sales. So it made for really like, you know, pretty smooth transition into the world of especially B2B marketing, I'd say. Yeah. Did you ever, or have you ever thought like uh, staying in an agency or, cause like I almost what you're saying there, I'm like, God, you, you'd be an amazing strategic planner in an agency. Yeah. I've thought, I, yeah, I thought about it. Um, and, it and it is something that I do really um, enjoy. You know, I led a trends and insights practice and we had um, a brand called the curve, which was, um, all about trying to, you know, provide insights and trends and things that people could leverage and use to help them come up with great content and great ideas. Um, and a lot of it was for custom branded content. Um, and I really, um, I really liked it, but I think there is something about the impact of marketing. Like it is really easy and tangible to see the results mm. of the work that you do. Um, and so that's the piece I think that that kept me in marketing, because when I left Indeed, I really did think a lot about which path do I want to go on? Do I yeah. want to go on this kind of marketing B2B route or do I want to go back into more kind of that agency world? Um, and I opted to, to say. Yeah, it is. 
it's interesting. And I think it's, a, I actually, I, I remember working for a previous boss of mine many years ago and he, he ran an agency and he, he often said um, he wished he'd gone client side for a period. And I think it's amazing people who've had the opportunity to, to do both because I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think when you worked in agencies and you go client side, you understand that agency world better. I spoke to Judy Nam on, for one of these podcasts and she, she used the term working with an agency is a gift. And yeah. I think coming from agencies, you appreciate that approach. Yeah. And you, you, I think are also more um, kind of rigorous and understanding the value that they can bring. Yeah. Uh, like a really good agency can be, you know, just can have so much impact on the business if you pick the right agents. Um, yeah. And I think you you can kind of understand that a little bit more and the right way to work with an agency as well. Exactly. Have you had, the, so then in kind of in that experience, things that you've learned about trying to select an agency? Because like when you've worked with an, when you haven't worked with an agency before, it's a bit of a, like it's a bit of a pageant almost like they come in and they present and it's all the senior people and then they all disappear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, I'd say like one of my recent sort of observations around it is to be thoughtful upfront about what it is that you're looking for. Um, because, you know, as an example, like you can pick an agency that has a really great process mm. and really great project managers but maybe they don't really have the leadership that you need in that particular space, whether it is wh whatever that is, whether it's creative yeah. leadership, brand leadership, whatever the case may be. And so I think it's to be really um, balanced about understanding that there's a difference between a job being done and a job being done well. Uh, and so that to me has been a really sort of important lesson because, you know, um, and I, I talk a lot of, I mean, we, we kind of know that there are people who are much more creative people that are much yeah. more analytical, but someone with a very analytical mindset is going to be really attracted to the process. Yeah. Um, and that can be just as distracting as someone who comes in and does the magic show. Yeah. Um, so you you got to be be careful there because I've seen scenarios where someone is like so excited because the agency that hit all the deadlines and did all the things, um, but the actual quality of the work wasn't there. And they might have been a little bit better to kind of find a bit of a balance. And it depends on the level of expertise that you have in your own company, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's the thing, marrying that really well with what you're already bringing to the table. I, that's really good, actually, because I think if you think about the gaps that you and your team might have in you know competencies or expertise because you can't build a you know unless you're you know have masses of budget you can't build a fully functioning marketing organization that is brilliant to add everything and probably nor should you oh absolutely not yeah you want to be able to outsource things you want to be able to bring in fresh perspectives yeah you want people who have really deep expertise in certain areas um so yeah you 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 shouldn't, you couldn't, unless, yeah. I, I don't even know with all the budget, if that would even work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, and there's kind of then the, you know, 
maybe a disadvantage sometimes at agencies, but also an advantage. Like, so they work on so many different things, right? The disadvantage of that is you don't always have the attention that you you might need. And I think that's a big agency thing to figure out. Like when you move a creative from an hour of work here to an hour of work there, they're never going to get to great work, right? That's a whole Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, um, you know, I think, you know, people at a certain point in their career probably understand this intuitively, but when you're bringing on an agency, the expectation is that, that they know your business as intimately as you do. And so sometimes I've had feedback where it's like, well, they don't understand our ICP. And I'm like, well, they're not supposed to. Um, they just started working with us. They have a difference. It is out, that is yeah. part of our responsibility, right? To educate them on how best to, um, you know, what, what, what our ICP is and what it's all about. So, um, you know, I think that's also another thing. Like there are things that I wouldn't expect them to, to know. Yeah. Or, yeah, or- yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and being able to guide the agency in a way that's not prescriptive, but actually making sure they're just not going down a rabbit hole that you've been exactly. before and you just know is never going to happen. Yeah. And it's part of the process. It just, yeah. Kind of, you know, it's, it's why it's, you know, important to have that right fit with the agency for sure. Yeah. Um, I hadn't planned to talk about agencies, but um, there we go. It, it's just interesting to know, like to see that kind of background and perspective and how you, you know, you, you can bring that to, to bear in your, in, in your current role. Um, I do want to go back and because I want to talk a lot about kind of your beliefs in marketing and, mm-hmm. you know, how you've, how you've applied them. And it's interesting, you did talk about the role at Indeed and you obviously kind of were working research and insights and then you you grew and managed a team of people that were delivering insights for, for clients. That was, was that the natural progression that you saw from the agency into that role at Indeed? Yeah, yeah. When I was at, um, um, kind of in the insights role, I was very customer facing. So I was going out, I was presenting insights. It was, you know, uh, it's theater. You know, it's kind of just theater. And so, you know, this idea of how do you, um, like, people want to learn, but they don't want to be taught, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's walking that line between how do you influence and share perspectives and give new information in a way that is um, easily received um, that is credible and makes sense. So I think a lot of the things that I learned on um, in the insights world translated really well to having uh, a team of people that were going out and doing it um, in a much more kind of structured way. Um, and you learn a lot around, you know, along the way, just, uh, you know, one of the things that I've kind of realized when anyone is presenting information to people is that the point of understanding and knowing your material is not about, you know, downloading everything that you know, is actually the reverse. It's understanding how to be as concise and um, clear as possible and when to be brief and when to be more expansive. Um, the biggest sign of someone who is not prepared is someone who just comes and tells you, you know, 1000 details. Um <laughs> That's usually the big giveaway. So I also ended up learning a lot about storytelling and mm. engagement and just, you know, connecting with people, I think, in that process. Did they, 
but I, I always got the sense that came very naturally to you. But I also remember having a conversation with you, um, I, possibly in Germany, randomly, right? And I was asking because I was, I was so intrigued by what you did, and and the way you did it. And when I saw you present, it was just so natural, and it seemed so. It seemed like you just got up off your seat and spoke to a room of friends. Like it was incredible. And I remember saying, asking you the question, like you know, you're doing this a while, like, you know, you must be kind of just able to do it now. And you're like, no, no, I prepare a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's true. I still get really nervous. Um, and, um, and I, I really want to know what I'm talking about and the material so well that I can say it in my sleep. And I probably have done that, you know, like <laughs> get on planes to myself and, you know, <laughs> going through the content. Um, but part of that is because I want that piece to be really effortless mm. so that I can think about like being a little bit more relaxed and being able to engage and being a little bit better at being present rather than trying to remember the next thing that I'm going to say. Okay. Um, always some element of that, I'm sure. But, you know, I think it is uh, the preparation and understanding of the material is really important. I, for me at least to be able to really actually, and you're, I'm never relaxed, but at some point to kind of relax and feel like, Oh yes, that's right. I know this. I can, you know, look around the room and make sure that people are, you know, engaged and understand and, you yeah. know, accuse if there's something that's going awry. So, um, so yeah, no, it, it's, it's still a lot of preparation. I do think it's something that I, have always enjoyed mm. <clears throat> I've been you know comfortable with the discomfort right uh, but I also think that most people could you know learn it it is a, a skill that I think that um, you know you can you can achieve um, and there are probably for some people who it feels a little bit more natural and for others that maybe it it doesn't yeah, and, but I, I think, you know, whether you're up on a stage <clears throat> in front of hundreds of people or you have to present something to a team of senior leaders, I think every marketer has to present, yes. right? And so I think even understanding some of that and hearing from someone like you and, you know, if people haven't seen you present, I can guarantee that you're exceptional, right? <laughs> so, but I think, you know, hearing that actually it is the preparation. You, you have to put the time in. And then you will still be nervous, mm -hmm. but you will be confident. And that's yes. probably the key. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that's absolutely it. It's, you know, usually the first few minutes you're really, you know, uncomfortable and then you begin to relax a little bit, but it's just part of the process. And, um, and I, and I think being able to do that has been helpful um, because I've had a lot of opportunities to think about, um, how to just connect with an audience and how to connect with folks. Um, and I think that that can be really helpful, you know, in all different ways. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of ex expand that to other parts of your, your work with that team actually was really interesting. It, it, a lot of people were, were remote because they were scattered mm -hmm. around the country. And th so this goes before COVID when everyone was remote. What did you learn about managing a remote team at that time maybe you know pre us all doing that i i found that fascinating to kind of understand what your approach was to to leading yeah. that team 
it was really interesting. Well, first it started with hiring, to be honest. I, I realized very quickly that um, certainly at that time, it might be a little bit different now. It was a little bit more novel. Mm-hmm. And for someone coming right out of school or someone who maybe had never worked remotely before, it was really important to kind of assess their ability to do it because um, I had a team. It was very much a team, but the work that they did every day was a bit more isolated. They traveled with the sales organization. They were doing a lot of things on their own and you have to be very kind of self-managed and self-regulated. So it definitely started, um, you know, and the hiring process too, and being really clear about what it feels like if they've never done that. Um, Lots of documentation, lots of focus on just connecting with people as people because Mm -hmm it is a lot harder to create connection with people when you're not interacting with them and when you don't see them every day. So really taking the time to just getting to know people and creating opportunities for them to getting to know others. How did you do that? Because I I find that really interesting. And again, more people have to do this now than ever before, but what was your approach to, to getting to know people from, from a distance? Yeah, I mean, some of it is just, I mean, you know, virtual meetings, but like just not talking about work and giving them an opportunity to ask questions, because I think one of the other challenges is that when you would sit in an office and have a question, I can turn around or just stand up and say, hey, does anybody know how to do Mm -hmm. XYZ or you overhear a conversation? None of that really happens in a virtual world. So just being available and being uh, really communicative about reach out, reach out, reach out, and also reaching out um, otherwise. Connecting people with, with buddies. What I really realized for remote people is that having someone who's already been doing the role remotely was helpful um, so that they could ask them questions and kind of bounce things off of them. Right. Um, and then also, you know, we did a lot of... Um, team sort of offsites. I'd say quarterly, I would get uh, the US team together. And then when I had oversight for the global team, we would try to get the entire global team together at least once a year. Um, and, you know, we'd spend three days to that, together doing things like workshopping content, doing trainings, but also having a lot of social time together. Yeah. And also went a really, really long way uh, to just forging those bonds. Yeah, it it can't like it. Re, I would agree with that. I think those moments of the non-work moments, and mm-hmm. whether that's the virtual one or but in person, I mean, just the shortcuts it creates going forward is, is really. I mean, and there's just no. We haven't figured out how to replicate that, and I don't know that we will. No, yeah. no. Our Christiana, um, who used to work in in Germany, did create a. Was it a, a virtual cooking session with us once that was kind of hilarious during COVID? But <laughs> it's, like, it's not the same. Um, yeah. you, you talk there about about sales and in any B two B marketing role, that relationship with sales is incredibly important. You know, you're very focused on driving revenue, the impact of your work. How do you build that relationship with sales in a way that you're not seen as kind of the supplier to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point because, you know, you don't want to be seen as um, working for sales. You are helping to accelerate the process. Yeah. Um, And, you know, 
I think one of the things is, you know, going back to kind of like building connections, just kind of like understanding what the needs of the sales organization actually are. And, and indeed it was really helpful because I traveled with the sales team right? for the first two or three years. And, uh, you know, it's going to events. So I got an opportunity to be in the room as they were, you know, talking to customers and trying to make sales and understanding what that's like. And you realize how confronting of a process that is, you know, yeah, um, and how like high pressure it can be. Um, to be in that situation. And so I think for me, it gave me a empathy for the role that I was able to take back to the marketing function Um, and um, enabled me to also really understand, you know, how it is about trying to, you know, help them collectively and at scale as as well is ultimately going to deliver impact. Um, so in my new role, we are we're just starting um, really a sales led motion, and I work very closely with our VP of sales, and we work very much in lockstep. But you know, it's even asking questions like how do how do sales best receive information? And yeah. the idea is not about you know, it, it's more about trying to move the business forward. Like we don't want the message to be cluttered or to get in the way of what we're trying to say. You just want it to be very clear and consistent. And I think that's the case, like in, in, when you're storytelling with anyone, right? Like yeah. you just want them to be able to receive the message in the way that they need to so that they can action it. And so I think having that um, empathy for the role has been helpful in understanding like what are the things that we need to consider to make it really easy for us to um, work well together. And I think as you start to see results um, and start to um, share those results and get feedback, that's when it really becomes uh, a true partnership. Um, You know, because I always say like marketing is really about driving growth and accelerating growth. It should be. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, when you are able to start doing that and some of it will be in partnership with sales and some of it, you know, may not be, but I think that's where you can really start to demonstrate the value. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think understanding this, the world that sales operates in is, is so undervalued sometimes, you know, yeah. <clears throat> and that's just the pressure, you know, not just the, the cause, you know, all that. but I think your point of, <clears throat> excuse me, being at an event and standing there and listening how they speak to the a customer and how the customer is speaking to them and those problems but the customer's trying to like that owning the customer insight yeah. from that is so valuable. And then understanding how sales, you know, may communicate it. You might be able to enhance that communication or as you say, get out of the way of it. You know, it's, I, th- I think getting close to that is, and probably un- unintentional in a way that the road you were in where you're traveling with sales was like almost shadowing sales with it, you know, that being the intent. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's um, a lot of the role that I had and the role of my team sometimes would be that we could say things that sales couldn't say or ask yeah, yeah. sales couldn't ask. Um, and you start to understand that dynamic a little bit, you know, where um, like the way you need to 
you know, make people feel good about the process, a customer feel good about the process? How do you give them, um, uh, how do you how do you provide uh, expertise and be credible? Um, and how do you use <clears throat> the channels in the right way? Because sales is also a channel, right? So yes. how are you leveraging the channels in the most appropriate way and kind of understanding that not every message is going to re- be received from sales um, in the way that it might be received if it were delivered through a different channel? Yeah. And... So now as you're building that out um, in your current role, how are you kind of thinking about, I mean, as you say really closely working with the VP of sales, but how are you thinking about the approach to make sure that maybe, I don't know, some of the mistakes you might've seen before don't happen or the things you're doing to kind of approach it differently? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the one thing that is working really well uh, right now is that there's such um, sort of interest in true collaboration and alignment on both sides. And, um, you know, that is really, really exciting. There's a lot of respect and a lot of, you know, enthusiasm. I think the thing that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about is, um, you know, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Um, because it requires a lot more alignment when you are trying to make sure that, marketing and sales are working very much in lockstep and you can't really rush that process um, or you potentially end up with, you know, negative outcomes. So spending the time to get everybody in the room up front, um, getting their input, um, building a program that is well thought out and that has been, you know, considered through every touch point something that is extremely important Um, and making sure that, you know, we're not doing things in a vacuum. Mm. Uh, Because I think sometimes what I've learned in the past is that, you know, coming from the the marketing side and, you know, you can have all the best intentions in the world of this is what's going to drive value and this is how we're going to be able to deliver impact. But if we haven't really been objective and obtaining feedback, uh, we can find ourselves going down the wrong path. Um, and so that for me is something that is really important. Like let's make sure that we are aligned as much as possible. And th- that doesn't mean that we have to agree a hundred percent on everything, yeah. but we've at least had an opportunity to discuss it and explain the rationale and come to a decision that this is going to be the best course of action for now. I th- that I love that the kind of the, the going slow taking your time but i guess in a in any business where there's pressure is there pressure on you to kind of go okay that's great but like let's get going or or have you kind of got parallel paths of this is kind of stuff we know we're confident is working so we're you know i don't know the performance marketing we're going to keep that moving but then these bigger projects are we're going to take a bit more time on um i guess it's a mix i mean i think um it's been kind of interesting i think one of the things i've really spent a lot of time thinking about and this is an idea that i stole from like this woman named emily kramer i don't know who she maybe she stole it from someone else this idea of uh, the fuel and the engine within marketing and that you need to have a great engine which are all the distribution mm. channels analytics operations but you also have to have really great fuel um and you need to have great content and messaging and all those kinds of things. And so a lot of what I think about is, are we integrating those things in the right way? Um, and 
So typically when I'm slowing down, it's because I'm recognizing that there's a mismatch. Okay. We are focusing on one thing too much and not the other. Um, and it requires us to come together in some way to think those things through. Uh, because you can have really, really great content. And there are people who are really good at creating content, but not as good at thinking about how we distribute it or getting it into the right people's hands. Yeah. And then you can have people that are really analytical and can really understand like how to, you know, kind of pull the different kind of levers we need to pull to get people to do what we need them to do. But they're not as good as thinking about the actual content. So it's, you, you got to just bring those things together for it to work the way yeah. it's really supposed to work. And do you recognize those things? Like, is that, just like it's that experience that you're kind of going, ooh, <laughs> you know, there's something am amiss here. You're just, it's kind of almost like gut. It's a little bit, I mean, you know, that's an interesting question because I do think it is a little bit of gut. It's kind of interesting too, because what I've also learned in this role is that your perception of yourself is influenced by your environment. Mm, okay. So when I was at Indeed, I would have thought of myself as being, uh, and I still think of myself as someone who's very focused on story and content, mm -hmm. but I'm not, I would have been like, I'm not a process oriented person. Like I, you know, not interested in that at all. I don't care about that. And then, you know, in a different environment, you begin to realize how very important it is to have some degree of process yeah. in order to kind of make sure that you're doing things in a, in a consistent way. So I think, some of it is a little bit of experience when you've seen a few things and, and uh, experienced a few things. Um, I think because of, you know, a lot of the things that I've done from both having been on the research side and then having been on the story side is kind of recognizing that you have to, like the messaging is so important and, you know, there's no getting around from my point of view of, being a like if you can deliver the right message to the right person um, at the right time let's just keep yeah. it <laughs> like it's is so powerful and, yeah. and that's, really that's really the fuel and the message right like the right message um is for sure that fuel piece and then the right person in the right time is a little bit of that engine piece um but it's it's just recognizing that you can't do one you really can't do marketing effectively if you're not doing both. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I, and I, I guess, yeah, I look, I completely agree. And I think um, one of the things is you're talking about some of that stuff I'm thinking about, again, I kind of go back to your agency experience and how that's, you know, I, I think incredibly valuable and to, to anyone who's done it. But one of the things we, we, struggle with, I think in B2B marketing is thinking about the brand. Now I know, I know you're, um, you you believe in the the role of brand, um, but as you think about now what you're doing, working with sales, you know, I don't know if they're asking for TV ads yet, but you know, are, you know, <laughs> how is that going, and how are you kind of thinking about how the brand shows up? Because obviously, content and stories is a huge part of it. But yeah. but what is your approach? Uh, well, we're in the middle of a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> to Wiz Hire? <laughs> uh, absolutely not. <laughs> But we, but we are, yeah, we're in the middle of a rebrand. Okay. And so it's been, um, it is, it is so important. It is so yeah. important because it's so foundational 
Um, and I think it's been, one, it's been exciting to go back and revisit some yeah. of the aspects of uh, my experience. Um, and, um, you know, it's been really um, clear to me that the brand is so foundational to the way we think about everything, you know, because brand is not just about the visuals and the copy. It really should be a reflection of how you do business. Yeah. Um, and if it, it's, you know, it can and should be, you know, aspirational in my point of view, but something that you feel is attainable and that you can and should be striving for. Um, so we're thinking a lot about all, all the things associated with that, like who we are, what we stand for, our messaging, where we are, where we're going, um, how do we visually express all of these things? Um, how do we clearly articulate it to all of our stakeholders? Um, and it's actually been interesting because it has been a process where I've learned a lot about Okay the business and the process, because to really be able to answer the questions, you really do need to have an understanding of how the business works, what are the pain points of the customers, what are their challenges, what are our challenges, what are the things that we're trying to do that we might be having a challenging time doing. So it's really having a deep understanding of where you are and where you're trying to go and how you kind of sort of bridge that gap. So brand has, um, and I don't know actually before I started if I would have known or thought that. Um, right. It's been, it's been um, like interesting to realize how core it is to all of the ways that it affects business, including performance marketing. You know, I yeah, think yeah. there's this perception somehow that the two are so disconnected and they're not at all. They're not. Yeah. They're so, there's so much opportunity when you have um, like a brand that gives you, you know, things to work with and, you know, levers to, to pull. Um, so it's been, it's been an interesting realization to just really acknowledge how core it is to, to our success. What, what prompted the, the process to go into a rebrand? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, like, I can't uh, take credit for this. Some of this started before I started with the exploration around this. Um, and, you know, YSR is a startup. And so, you know, I think, um, and they've been around since 2014, by the way, uh, and, and were initially bootstrapped um, before starting to raise funding. And so I think that there was a real acknowledgement that a lot had changed okay. in terms of how we do business, um, who we do business with. Um, what our goals are and what the potential future of wise hire could look like. Um, and so those conversations were happening prior to me joining the business. Um, and then since I've joined, I think it's been really nice to help, you know, shepherd it on the back end and bring in an agency and a partner who can really help us with that. Um, and, you know, I think now too, because prior to me coming, um, you know, they had someone who was leading the team in an interim fashion. But I think the benefit of having a new leader is that I get an opportunity to be privy to conversations that may 
of the marketing team isn't. Mm-hmm. So being able to, you know, take what I know from a strategy perspective and where we're going perspective and incorporate that into the brand has been really, um, really interesting. That, yeah, <clears throat> that's fast. I mean, that is an incredible piece of work to be involved with in any organization to have that opportunity is phenomenal yeah and it's why i'm tired this morning (laughs) (laughs) good tired good busy yeah 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 yeah. but that's the kind of stuff i'm for me again i get a lot of you know energy i really enjoy that side of of the work like it's you know when someone sends a recording of a video and if it's about certain things i tend not to watch them but if it's about a you know something I'm like oh I'll watch that um you know but it's but it's it's lovely to have the mix I think and what's great is here's a b2b company that is believes in marketing but more fundamentally believes in the brand like that's not rare but like it's not everywhere and what advice would you have for somebody who's in a, a b2b organization and they're struggling with maybe their leadership of kind of trying to express the the need for us to think about our brand. Yeah. I mean, I would, um, you know, I think there's a couple of things that jump out. I think one is I start with brand is fuel, like basically. And I start with the idea of kind of, you know, reaffirming this idea of having the right fuel and the right engine. And, you know, brand will give your organization, um, a framework to make decisions. Um, it will give you consist- consistency and clarity of message. And it should also give you a way to connect with, you know, the customers and the audience that you care about. And so that's why brand is so important. And I think, you know, we will call things on the performance marketing side, like demand creation and then demand capture. Demand creation is brand. Mm-hmm. And brand isn't always about, you know, television ads and, you know, spending lots of money in those ways. Like brand can be manifest in many, many different ways through performance marketing, through um, content, through SEO. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways that your brand can come to life. So I think I would try to dissuade, especially if it's a smaller startup, this idea that brand equals you know spending tons of money yeah obviously there is a component of that as you grow and as you are trying to get more and more awareness across broader and broader audiences especially if you've now incorporated a a b2c component but it just gives you better tools to work with yeah it just really does i love the framework for decisions I, i i that's a wonderful way of actually articulating you know why we need to think about our brand because i agree with you a lot of maybe smaller companies you know will struggle with well you know yeah 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 the brand but we can't afford brand and actually it's like well let's invest in understanding who like it's the who we are what we say where we show up and then you grow and scale that over time and you know maybe someday you'll be on tv maybe you won't right that doesn't matter 
Yeah, and you know, I think it's also important because it's not just a framework for one or two people to make decisions, but potentially everyone to make decisions. Because one of the other challenges I see is that you might talk to the leadership of a company and they're like, oh yeah, we have a very clear brand. And then you talk to someone that's actually on the ground doing the work and they have like no idea what you're talking about because it lives in the mind of a handful yeah. of people. Yeah. So that's the other benefit is it's a framework for making decisions and it should create more like consistency and clarity across the org overall, whether you yeah. are 50 people or 5,000 people. Yeah. One, one of the best ones I ever saw, there's a, there's a company called Clio. Uh, they're a legal tech company and um, I managed to get to see their kind of brand I don't know if it was their guidelines it was kind of like their brand bible, but it was like that. It touched on everything. And I was like, this is amazing because it was, if I was in any part of the organization, I could read this and it would, it would resonate with me because it was like, you know, if you're in sales, CS, anything, it, it spoke to all the people that had a role in the brand. Cause every single person in the company, you know, is someone who talks about the brand, you know, and, and that's so powerful. I remember reading it going, that, this is really good because it was well thought out. It was really clear. It was simple to understand and everybody could use it. And that's, you know, that's unique. Cause a lot of brand guidelines are, here's our font and, you know. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, like the, the ultimate success of a brand or rebrand should be, can you use it? Like, is yeah. it, is it <laughs> to like, can you actually implement it? Uh, yeah. If you walk away feeling like I have no idea, you know, what, you know, what I'm supposed to do or do differently. Yeah. I think that's where the, the challenges come. Yeah. I know what shade of this <laughs> color to use, like, you know, yeah. yeah. Or and not use more importantly. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, as you've got into a new role and you, you you think, I mean, we've talked a bit about your, your leadership style and your, and your approach, but as you've thought about how you want to lead your your new team in, in the new organization, what's your approach been and, and have there been any lessons that you've taken from other leaders with you, be those, I never want to do it this way, or um, I, I, I really admire the way this person led and applying that to your leadership approach? Yeah, I think things that have remained consistent is that I really try to empower people. I really try to lean into where people have strengths um, and, um, you know, give them something that they can do and do really well uh, as much as possible. You know, sometimes yeah. have a complete mismatch. Um, so that has been something that is important to me because I think when people feel some degree of ownership, they're just more engaged and, um will probably be a little bit more excited about the work. Um, I really try to adhere to this idea that clear is kind, which is, you know, something that I've had to get better at over time. I think, you know, um, erring on the side of diplomacy can work sometimes, uh -huh. but then there's those times where you realize the message is not getting through. I need to be really, really clear and uh, really kind of setting myself up to be able to do that in a way that feels consistent with, with my values, which is just treat people like adults, mm. basically. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think 
probably the biggest lesson that I've learned. And there's, there's probably been a lot. I've seen, there's definitely been a lot of examples of, of leadership that I don't want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, it's really important that I connect with people as people. And I'm just not transactional. And I, you know, can't be transactional. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times I'm just like swamped and busy. And it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to have the time. Like, yeah. I'm not in frame of mind for the three minute like chit chat because I have like, you know, something to do. But the way I approach that, but that's more of an occasion than like an expression yeah. of the relationship overall. So I really do try to connect with people as people because for me, it just makes the work easier and more effective. I understand what people value and what motivates them. Yeah. Um, I'd say the biggest lesson though has been to be more self-confronting in terms of like really being thoughtful about what my strengths and weaknesses are because we have such blind spots. (laughs) Uh, we, I think we all do, right? We oh, have, yeah. you know, we have the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, and it's really hard to break that narrative. So, I think for me as a leader, one of the things I really realized is I need to figure out, uh, and this is probably the the controversial statement of the day: How do you receive feedback from someone? you don't like and maybe don't even respect. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because there can be kernels of truth in that. Yeah. Someone who you have that dynamic with, assuming that they're not just trying to be uh, intentional. Yeah, right? That there's probably some truth in there Mm -hmm. uh, that you need to hear. But because of the nature of that relationship, like you just can't receive it. Uh, And so... I think that for me has been one aspect of leadership is like, how do I, I mean, I've heard the phrase caring critic. I mean, ideally you would have someone in your circle who can be more of a caring critic, someone who yeah. um, uh, talk about radical candor that will be familiar. This like, yeah. this like two by two of like, you know, caring deeply and challenging directly, but you have to care about people in order yes. to give those messages. Right. Yeah, It doesn't work if you don't, you don't care. Yeah. Other, it's just weaponized. Yeah. <laughs> But if you have a caring critic in your corner, that's someone who actually wants you to succeed and is willing to tell you the real truth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you don't, is there any real kernel of truth that you can find from someone that you don't like? Yeah. Uh, sometimes the answer is no, because every piece of feedback is just a point of view. So, you know, mm-hmm. even if someone, you know, does like you, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that the feedback that they give you should all be actioned. Um, But I think as a leader, like it gets harder and harder to get the truth around the things that you're doing well and the things you're not doing well, at least when it comes to things that are not just bottom line oriented. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about the blind spots as, as as you lead you know, and we have the blind spots, who's there to tell you about the blind spots? Like, that's hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, if you have people, usually the people that report into you, if you can foster certain relationships with people, and not everyone is going to feel comfortable, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But like, trying to create a space where people can show up and tell you the thing that needs to be told is really, really helpful. It is. Uh, And 
Um, and sometimes, you know, people will couch it in, in phrases like, um, you know, sometimes people are really direct or sometimes they'll say, I've been talking to people on the team and this is what they're hearing. Now that can also backfire because I've had people say that to me and I'm like, I think this is you. <laughs> but, you know, you want to receive that feedback um, kind of in good faith. Um, but it is helpful when you have people who can come to you um, and share that. Um, sometimes, you know, when you are, what I find is like your, your leader can tell you certain things, but because yeah. of the dynamic of that relationship, it's, it's often, um, they're not going to see the things that the people who report into you see. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really useful. So, um, certainly, uh, when I was at Indeed, for sure, because I there were some people that I managed almost the entire time that I was right. there. Um, you know, I was really able to cultivate a relationship where they could, you know, say to me, "By the way, Carmen, you know, I don't think the team responded that well when this happened. Yeah, this is why." Um, and it takes a certain amount of. Uh, psychological safety to be able to do that. Yes. Um, and it takes an actual relationship to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's kind of been the way that I've, um, I've addressed it. And then sometimes, you know, uh, I do think I believe in the power of intuition and, and your gut. And I've, I've had to balance that with, you know, waiting to make sure that there's data to actually support, you know, what my gut or intuition has, has said, but, you know, giving yourself to time, some time to reflect and think about why did I feel icky after this right. thing happened? Or what was it about that, that, you know, felt kind of off. And sometimes that can also be a way to, to just listen to what your gut is telling you about maybe something you did or something you said. Yeah. Yeah. The power of intuition. It's yeah. uh, I and I think you look. I can't, couldn't agree more with the it. It knowing it's trusting, like it's, trust and you know having that relationship with people that they they trust. It's coming from a right place, and I don't think it's enough to say, you know, feedback is a gift. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just people like that's just, that. I don't know that I believe that. I'm like, you can keep your gift. I've got to re-gift this gift. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the receipt? Yeah. <laughs> We're retarding of this. Um, yeah, people say that, but sometimes it's, you know, you you have to be thoughtful about what you take on and what you don't. And I think that's part of it. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, that's very true. So you're, I, it's, for me, I've had occasions where I've probably done what you've suggested. I've purposefully gone out to people who I know will be challenging in the field so I literally I'm going okay this is coming in when it comes in I'm going to just prepare myself because I know it's going to be difficult yeah but there'll be a nugget in it and so I think almost mentally you have to kind of put yourself in the place of okay find something here that's useful yeah and they're probably and I agree with you there will be something and sometimes actually those are better I find them more useful written yes because you can actually kind of go okay I'm gonna I'm gonna read with a tone that's not that negative tone, I'm going to read with the tone of, you know, love and compassion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, because I think this idea that, um, you know, and I think I think we've passed this point where people say, oh, it's not it's not personal, it's business. Well, of course it's personal. 
Like we spend so much time doing it. Like we're at work all the time. You invest like yeah. energy into it. So of course it's personal. And so I think we have to just, you know, get rid of the idea that it's like not personal. It's just business. Like yeah. it's more personal. And it's, and it's you and you are a person. So I'm completely agree with you. Like, this isn't personal. I mean, it kind of is. It's kind of really personal. Um, I'm just looking at our time here and I and we we're nearly close to the end. I, I did want to ask you about uh something you put up on LinkedIn about two months ago. And at the time I said it to you, like it really kind of floored me and impacted me. And you said, uh I won't read it all, but like the, the bit that I stopped relaxing my hair because it was something I thought I had to do. And like, it stopped me in my, in my tracks. And I've, I've talked about this with you. I have no lived experience yeah. of that at all. And it, I was just like, I think I sent you a message going like, what? Like tell yeah. me, talk yeah. about this. I'd love you to talk about that, you know, your experience of, of kind of, rela- first of all, maybe for people who don't know relaxing hair, I didn't know what it was that I read. So can you talk to me a bit about the post and kind of the, yeah, absolutely. So there is a bit of, a bit of legislation um, in the U.S. that's being uh, that we're, we're trying to push through called the Crown Act, which basically prevents the discrimination based on hair. Right. That sounds ridiculous. Right. It sounds yeah. like, but the reality is that, you know, you know, most um, people of African descent have curly, kinky hair um, and have been sort of taught throughout their life that the best way to fit into society is to relax it or straighten it. So as a child, now I grew up in Mississippi in the South, so I'm not going to say that my experience is the same for every woman, but I grew up getting my hair straightened, you know, with the hot comb and was excited when I was 12, because then that's when I could actually start to chemically straighten it. And I remember my big sister taking me for the first time. And, you know, at that age, like you're starting, like maybe not at 12, but a little bit older and you get your first job. And it's like, I'm spending like very, the little money I have, right. To go and have someone do this to my hair. And I did it pretty consistently till I was, you know, 28. And I remember when I was in college and I was going to this beauty salon in Boston and that the hairdresser was telling me, you know, maybe you shouldn't, you know, relax your hair anymore. And it was just like an insane idea because it was like, well, of course, because everyone I know does this and this is just what you do if you are a black woman. And then I, you know, money was no, was less of an issue. And I was going like every two weeks and spending money and time and you know, you just get to these points where you stop and you question the thing that you've always done as if it's like, fine. I'm sure at this time, and I was in, in Brooklyn, New York by this time, I'm sure at this time it was becoming much more common to, you know, for, for women and black women to, to have different ways to, to sort of style their hair. But um, I just thought I, the time and money I'm spending on this is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I could be doing so many other things. And um, it was interesting because I made the post, uh, that post and another good friend of mine um, was recalling when I was having the conversation with her, you know, like 20 years ago, because I was just talking to her and I was like, I just, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why do we do this? It was just like this really kind of like existential conversation, why we do the things that we do. Um, And so I stopped and I remember 
not so much in my like close circle of friends in New York, but certainly family members, you know, asking me questions like, well, what is this going to mean for your career? And you're not going to be able to get a job. And just there's a lot of pressure, I think, on Black women to adhere to a certain um, standard. And, and there's really no recognition of the investment that it takes to do it either. Uh, like the fact, the idea that a Black woman would not only be discriminated against it in addition to the time and the investment that it takes, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it just um, changed um, my, my ideas around what success looks like. I, I realized that, you know, yes, there are always going to be people that are going to be critical and make statements, but there are a lot of people who don't care. You know, (laughs) that's the thing, like they're, you know, and maybe this is a function of the environment in which I'm in now. I find that most, it has very little impact on certain things. Um, but it is still something that people pretend um, is about professionalism when it's really just discrimination and basically racism. Now, yeah. that does not mean that I haven't had people ask questions like, you know, recently, like, like you know, how often do you wash your hair? Or And, and I'm not talking about close friends. I'm talking about yeah. like an acquaintance or a colleague. Um, or to to get involved in you know certain questions, and sometimes it's fine because of the nature of the relationship that you might have with that person, and sometimes it's absolutely not. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I think it still, in in some ways, it still surprises me because I feel like I I I might not experience it as much in my day to day now here yeah. in New York. But I remember what it was like when I first made that decision and the comments and the feedback that I got from people of all kind of walks of life. Um, And I imagine that there are some people who are experiencing that right now, Um, you know, because right now I have a resume and I've done things that I can kind of show up. I'm not just starting because if I were just starting my career, maybe I would feel different. Um, So it's it's. it's an unfortunate reality that it is still a topic of conversation. Um, And it's still basically a legal form of discrimination. Um, You know, sorry. I mean, again, I can't really comment on it, but it just seemed phenomenal to me. Does it annoy you, frustrate you that it's, it's still something that people are experiencing? it frustrates me a little bit. I mean, I think it's easy sometimes to, because in my world, in my social circles, there are many, many people who have all different types of hair. Um, and then, you know, every once in a while, not so much anymore, you know, you fall down the rabbit hole of social media and you find your looks change that you never really wanted to have. Um, I was, you know, found myself in this conversation with someone about uh, military protocol because there was a real pushback because the military was requiring, um, you know, certain things in terms of hair, like the way, you know, women would show up with their hair. And I was like, okay, like, why, why is that a thing? And 
someone was challenging that like everybody has to be uniform because you know god forbid you're somewhere and you're you know my hair gives us away you know <laughs> you know and it was really frustrating because it's you have no idea what's required to make something unnatural yeah from something natural right like and the solution should not be to have them to continue to do that, it should be to figure out a better solution. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the thing that really frustrated me, the idea that not only do you not know, you haven't even paused to think about what it might require. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's frustrating. It's really, really frustrating when you hear about these incidents because it just feels like something that, it's just unfathomable, unfathomable, unfathomable to me yeah. that it still occurs. Yeah, um, and people can be kicked out of school because of you know the way that they wear their hair. Um, so it's it's really frustrating, and um, you know you feel um, like there's nothing that you can really do about it, which is why I decided to do the post. Yeah. Because I think for me, it was, you know, going back to this idea of connection and storytelling, you know, I think for me, that is the way often where you can kind of share an experience with someone to get them to understand, like, what it means to walk through life in a certain way. Um, And so that was why I decided to do the post and why, you know, hopefully, you know, the Crown Act, you know, will be passed. Yeah. Look at how that exact impact on me someone who you know really doesn't have that certainly not that experience but not aware of that and you know it being the thing that honestly like I said it, it completely for me my last question to you then is just I, I you know as a as a female leader do you do you do you feel positive or good about kind of the the opportunities for for women and maybe let's be general but marketing or do you still think there's a long way to go um, can I say both? Uh, yeah, I think you know what I will say that I think um, we are um, there. We're moving in the right direction. It's probably going a little bit slower than I would have liked. I think the pandemic had a really detrimental effect mm-hmm. on on women. I think what is happening now. It's sort of like if you're not identifying any problems and you're not solving anything, I think what's happening now is we're in this space where we're identifying a lot of problems. Uh, And it feels like, and I can understand why that can feel particularly hopeless. And I'm thinking, I'm talking specifically about, you know, kind of, you know, careers and, you know, working in marketing and things like that. There's a lot of other things happening in society too. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I think specifically about that, I think, a lot of women are starting to ask really good questions just about the way work is valued, about pay transparency, about the unequitable loads in the household and what we can do about that. I mean, I think there is a lot of really important problems that are being identified. And for me, that starts to suggest that we're just in a better position to actually do something about it. Yeah. So, well, I think it's it's there, there've been a lot of things that have kind of, you know, felt like they've slowed us down quite a bit and I think there's a long way to go. The 
the thing that keeps me optimistic is the fact that more and more women and more and more allies too are mm. just acknowledging more and more of kind of the problems. It's kind of that existential question that I had with myself where you start to ask yourself, why does it work this way? Why do we do the things that we do? Is there is that really the only way? Um, and I think starting to address that for me is is how I kind of hang on to the optimism. Well, and you are always very optimistic. I will I will definitely say that to you. You are you're you're such a positive person. You know, inc- incredibly positive, and um, you know, you just bring such great energy and empathy to to work and working with you as I had the pleasure of doing for for many years and just such a joy and um you know great to see you and Wizheart Wise Wise I'm definitely gonna just um trademark the other name and uh <laughs> before you change take it off me. Um, but no wonderful to see you leading that team and you know it's just phenomenal to to see you landing where you know you deserve to be and yeah. it's um thank you so much for spending so much time with me today i really enjoyed chatting to you absolutely thank you so much for asking it's a joy as always and uh maybe we'll meet up in ireland or new york again soon oh uh, i still get um i still get messages from milk and hops Oh, really? what's going on? Yeah, yeah, like this Friday in Milk and Hops. It's and I'm like, I'll, ne- I'll probably never be back there, but it doesn't matter. I love getting the emails. Like, That's where I had a drink with Carmen. <laughs> uh, Carmen, thanks a million. All righty. Thanks, Carmen. Carmen is such an amazing human being, first and foremost. She is kind, funny, and so smart. I love spending time with her. I'm sure you got some great takeaways from this episode. For me, I thought Carmen's perspective that sometimes you have to go slow to go fast was amazing. We all want to have an impact and have it quickly, but being able to trust your gut, your intuition, and know that you need to pause to make it better is a real skill and something I'm going to certainly try uh, do more of. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on that's what I call marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram, that's what I call marketing, on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And now you can watch our episodes on YouTube and you guessed it, you can find us on that's what I call marketing. So for me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.